Coming up this hour, we're going to talk about the federal death penalty and also are pastors more reluctant to preach on race? You're listening to The Common Good. Everybody, welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Really happy to have you with us today. Uh, remember, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Common Good Talk. You can find us online, 1160hope.com. You can get our podcast wherever it is you get your podcast. Subscribe, rate, and review. We are grateful to those of you who do that. Mr. Simpkins, happy Thursday. How is it for you today? It is... Peach Keen. It is Peach Melbin or Mel. What Melbin, was the, that's what it, Melba, what was Melbin. It? <laughs> I, I think oh, that was yeah. it. Oh, it sounded a wonderful though. Yeah. <laughs> Peach <laughs> Melba, M-E-L-B-A. Yep. That is, okay. that's, let's see how much time I can burn in this segment talking about that dessert. <laughs> and how you're feeling like it. <laughs> mm, which is inaccurate. I'm not feeling like that dessert at all. No, no, it's uh, it's a good cold winter day here, but we are glad uh, to be together. Lots to talk about today. And again, uh, of course, we could have started with the uh, with with the impeachment and uh, all that's still kind of going on. (laughs) Yes, there is an impeachment. Yes. And uh, all that is still going on in uh, our nation's capital. But we're going to start somewhere else today. Actually, you know, I want to start with a bit of a heavy topic today because I was doing some reading on this today. And a lot of times when I think to myself, "Ah, I don't know what I think or, man, I could see both sides. I think to myself, we should talk about that on the radio. Like, I don't know what we would do if we didn't have a radio show because that's how my (laughs) mind works. Like, hey, let's just talk about it then. Uh, And it has to do with the federal death penalty. Uh, And so there was this one article I was reading about. Uh, just the other night, uh, the United States federal government executed Lisa Montgomery. She was the first woman put to death in the federal system since 1953. Mm-hmm. Uh, so she was put to death. And on the one hand, the story is that she had a lot of abuse as a child, some mental issues, like just some real baggage and some issues. On the other hand, she did strangle a pregnant woman in 2004 and took her unborn baby. And so just a heinous crime. And so we've got that that went on last night. Uh, and then Shane Claiborne today tweeted this. Shane Claiborne, if you know him at all, is uh, very much anti-death penalty and very out there trying to trying to get other people uh, to understand what's going on. He says, tonight we will be at the execution chamber here in Terre Haute, Indiana, as the federal government carries out another execution, the second one this week, and we'll be there again tomorrow This is the most federal executions we've had in over a century. Lord have mercy. And so those are two things going on. And then you read this at NPR. uh, Democrats unveil legislation to abolish the federal death penalty. It says Dick Durbin in the incoming chair of the Senate Judiciary Committee is unveiling legislation that would seek to end federal capital punishment putting a focus on the issue as their party prepares to take over complete control of Congress as along with the White House. And so we've had more federal executions in the last couple of months than we've had in years. And so, Ian, that's a lot of just what I was reading and a lot of the story. When you hear that, uh, what do you what, what do you think? How do you wrestle with it? Uh, and, and I guess I would love to know just where do you end up coming out on all of this? Oh, yeah, this this one isn't a tough debate for me, to be honest. I'd love I don't to hear it. I don't feel much um, wrestling, although I will say, I mean, talk about just a category of awful crime. Like Mm -hmm. it's in a it's 
gut wrenching and and just horrific. Like, and I, my guess is that that's probably true for a lot of people who've been sentenced to death by the government. You know, I think if you would to if you were to hear, you know, what what they were uh, accused of or convicted of, you'd be like, no, that's that is just terrible and awful and dark. But as uh, as a Christ follower, I I just see the the death penalty as incongruous with the ethos of Jesus. I I just can't, I can't, I've, I've read uh, position papers. I've, I've listened to debates. I, I mean, I, it's been a while, but I mean, we've even had Shane on the show. We, I think we were talking mm-hmm. more about uh, guns um, than we were the death penalty, but yeah, I, I just, I, I become more and more, convinced myself and not you know perhaps there's all sorts of other confirmation bias at play there but um yeah especially as a as a jesus person as a christ follower i just i can't i I can't see myself uh, at any point being okay with it the weird spot you like to put me in so i'm gonna i'm gonna reverse the table reverse the tables turn the tables here uh is you you like to have me argue points that i don't agree with so what do you think is the is the other side of that debate that you said for the Christ followers. So not just anybody, but somebody who says, no, I'm a Jesus person. I'm a Christ follower. And, and I believe that the death penalty is a much needed and a, and something we need culturally in our society. What do you think? How do you think that argument goes? I mean, the argument tends to start in the old Testament, right? Um, Exodus 20 or 21, something like whoever strikes a man, to the point where he dies shall be put to death. You know, there's a, there's a number of things in, in the Hebrew Bible that, uh, that speak to that. Um, but if we believe that Jesus is the sum and substance of the fullness of God's presence, you know, made manifest to us. I mean, he, he speaks even pretty specifically to a, a number of, I think of even you know his most famous sermon on the Mount where he talks about how we are to, um, resist retaliation that, you know, what some have called the, the myth of redemptive violence that well, you hurt someone, we're going to hurt you back twice as hard. That's a, a methodology, unfortunately, that a lot of modern Christians have adopted. And we've seen that play out in, in just a number of different ways. Um, but that tends to be where the, where the argument at least begins. Like, see, it's right here in the pages of scripture. I would also say that there's, and this gets murky, obviously, but I, I think that there's a big difference between something that's a backdrop of scripture and something that's prescribed in scripture. There's, there's, a, there's a big difference there. Now, you know, we talk about the 10 commandments all the time. And like, I, I, I think those hold up to be honest, even though those are in the <laughs> aforementioned Exodus. And uh, so it's, it's not a, I don't want to make any straw man. I don't want to pretend like there's yep. not really smart people, really, you know, people of conviction on both sides of it. But uh, for, yeah, for me, I think of even Jesus's response to Peter, you know, chopping an ear off. I mean, like, no, 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 that's not that's not the way we do this. You know, someone who'd walked with Jesus for at least three years, you know, like spent time with them, still felt at that moment in time, like, yeah, violence is the thing I need to resort to here for the greater yeah. good. You know, um, yeah. on one hand, I find that uh, I don't know the comforting is the word, but it's like, man, even he missed it at times you know even even jesus's own like crew was at times way off yeah. the mark asking like yeah who's who's the greatest in your kingdom he's like are you kidding were you not here for the whole least will become f- like all of that stuff <laughs> um but i think yeah. yeah if we look to the person of jesus it's really really hard for me at least to imagine jesus 
rubber stamping the death penalty. Yeah, I I totally agree with you. And I think you put it in really good terms for the last minute here. Uh, pastorally, could you help people? Because somebody might have just heard you say, wait, the backdrop versus the I think you said prescribed. That's a very yeah. interesting way. I think it's an important part of Bible study. But there might be people out there going, what did he mean by that? Could you just give a thumbnail sketch as to what you meant by that as people are like, oh, OK, I want to I want to read the Bible correctly. Uh, give a little idea of what you meant by that. Sure. Yeah, I, th- I think there's probably I mean, there's there's some egregious examples of kind of proof texting and cherry picking scriptures where like I saw a joke one where the it was a day, you know, a verse a day calendar thing. And it was like a really out of context um, quoting uh, Satan when Jesus was being tempted <laughs> in, in the desert. And I was like, mm, context, context, context. So <laughs> there's, there's really obvious ones where someone just sort of reaches and pulls out a random verse it's like see it's in the bible you're like yeah there's a lot of awful things in the bible obviously you get to like the verse that i mentioned earlier that gets a little different because exodus 21 is saying well this is what god told us to do um but i i think that's probably a part of a much bigger discussion though even understanding mm-hmm. yeah what what was something maybe that was the, the backdrop of the culture of what was happening there versus something that you know jesus says hey this is how you this is how you are to live um yeah so that can be uh, helpful, but also very difficult practice. Yeah, absolutely. So we'd love to know what you think, particularly about this issue uh, about the death penalty, because you've heard where we're at. Uh, but you can find that on our Facebook and Twitter and Instagram pages uh, at Common Good Talk. Well, coming up next, we're going to talk a little bit about Ravi Zacharias. And the Christian Post poses this question. Can we separate the good Ravi Zacharias did from his sin? I'm going to tackle that question next here on The Common Good, AM 1160. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160. Hope for your life alongside Ian Simpkins. My name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you with us today. Uh, I hope that you're having a good day. If you miss any of the show, a couple different places you can find it at 1160hope.com. Also, get our podcast wherever it is you get your podcast. Subscribe, rate, and review. And Ian, I actually got a text from somebody last night, a friend of mine, and she said, hey, I just got Alexa for Christmas. Uh, how do I find your podcast on it? And I was like, uh-oh. <laughs> and I was like, try this. And she was able to do it. So <laughs> She was like, you don't know? And you're like, not yet, but I'm going <laughs> to. Oh, but having to type it, I was like, what, what are you supposed to say? <laughs> Alexa, play heresy. Oh, there you oh, are. <laughs> boy. Oh, dear. Too much. No, no, no. Uh, yeah, so you can find us on Alexa as well. Basically, anywhere you get podcasts or radio shows, you can find us. So, uh, Ian, I find a, a really interesting and a bit of a provocative question at the Christian Post asked today. John Stone Street, in his guest column, asks this. Can we separate the good Ravi Zacharias did from his sin? Can we separate the good that Ravi Zacharias did from his sin? Why don't you jump us into what John Stone Street had to say here? Yeah, he starts by saying, two days before Christmas, Ravi Zacharias International Ministries confirmed that its founder had engaged in sexual misconduct over the course of many years. Ravi, a highly regarded speaker, author, and apologist, died a few months ago. In its initial interim report, RZIM leadership not only confirmed the allegations, but promised a full and thorough final report. Like so many others, I'm devastated. Ravi was not only a significant personal influence for me, he was a great friend of the ministry for years. In fact, he was a guest on one of the last radio broadcasts I co-hosted with Chuck Colson. I remember beginning the interview by apologizing for all the times I had inadvertently <laughs> plagiarized him over the years. When Robbie died, the Colson Center honored him in a number of ways. At the time, 
There were initial allegations that had been investigated and dismissed. We trusted the information provided to us. We were wrong. I believed and shared excuses for obvious behavior, and in doing that, I misled others. There is no sugarcoating, excusing, or explaining away Ravi's behavior. It was sinful. It was wicked. And it was folly, which is one of the words Proverbs uses to describe sin. Simply put, our sin makes us foolish. Buried in sin, we actually think that for the first time in human history, we will be the ones to get away with it. Not only this, but Ravi's sin left victims. The most harm was done directly to those women he abused, human beings made in the image of God and for whom Christ died. Other victims, including family, friends, and the disillusioned around the world who benefited from Ravi's teaching. Recently, a Breakpoint listener emailed us asking how we should respond to cases like this when a Christian leader or teacher is caught in sexual misconduct. Is it possible to separate the good that they've done and the truth they've taught, the person and their sin? And what about in cases such as this when the perpetuator the perpetrator is gone and has no further opportunity to acknowledge his sins, repent, and seek forgiveness. So mm. that's kind of the million-dollar question. He's going to get into sort of his position there. How would you answer that initial question? I struggle with this because, you know, whether it be Ravi Zacharias's books or certain pastors' sermons, because, uh, you know, Ravi Zacharias's writings um, – they they did a lot for uh, for helping people kind of form their faith or answer questions. But in some ways, it was done under a false pretense uh, of right. who he said he was and what he was doing, like with a lot of pastors out there who celebrity pastors who have fallen. And, uh, you know, you go back and you're like, man, but their sermons were so good. Uh, I would like to think uh, that that you can still learn from his books and his writings but I do think it has to be done through the lens of of who, who what he what he was hiding and, and who he was. And, and I don't know how you place those together, but I don't think the answer is to, well, he's dead. Let's pretend nothing was wrong with him. Yeah. Uh, but also, I'm not sure it's helpful to throw out the all the books and all the teachings of his. So I would like to think that you could still um, that, that the that the messenger doesn't need um uh, yeah, I would like to think that, that you could still learn from and grow from uh, despite the imperfections of the messenger. How would you answer that question? Well, first off, I would say it's way more severe than imperfections. We're all, yeah, we all have point. imperfections. This is abuse. Valid this point. Is, Valid this point. is the infliction of trauma. Um, mm -hmm. So I'd want to be stronger than that. Like, hey, we're all broken. Keep buying the books. The other piece <laughs> that is, is definitely yes. tough for me to reconcile because if he was alive, I would be inclined to say something like it doesn't make anything uh, that he that's he's said in the past as true, less true. Um, but we don't need to keep supporting him or his ministry. The mm -hmm. the strange dichotomy for me now is who are the people that stand to benefit? Well, it's, it's his family, the, the ones who have also been caught in this and have mm -hmm. been harmed. And in many in many ways, I'm sure shamed. Right. Like there's so that even that even gets a little messy for me. Like, well, he, Okay, so he's not benefiting from you know any further support mm -hmm. of the ministry, but I I do think we need to be very very careful for uh, all the reasons he's mentioned. But I think there's another element here that he doesn't necessarily get at. Um, there's the obvious one. There's the obvious concentric circles of like supporting of him, and then supporting of what he said or the people around him. I also think though, and maybe this isn't considered enough that. We have an opportunity as Christ followers to communicate to a suspecting world how serious we take abuse and trauma. Like mm. there is one thing to have this sort of 
inside baseball family meeting type dialogue, but I think we often miss an opportunity to say, hey, when we conclude, and, and you listening may have already concluded this, like, ah, okay, well, sure, he made some mistakes, but man, oh, man, was he gifted? Was he talented? Like, what we have to consider, what does that convey then to the people who hear us make those claims who are not a part of the church, but who have been victimized and traumatized mm-hmm. themselves? Like, hey, so, so if he has a big intellect or is a gifted communicator, he like gets more of a pass than the rest of us. Is that, we've definitely talked about that on the show before. Like, and that's not just a ministry. That's, you know, yeah, sure. He did some things, but he's a great running back. He's, you know, he, <laughs> like there's a tendency that if they bring value to you or the team somehow that, you know, maybe the, uh, the punishment is slightly less severe. I don't know. So there's, there's a lot to consider, to be honest, that I, I think we need to also probably apologize to the people who have been saying this stuff for years mm-hmm. and and weren't believed and in some cases were maybe dismissed aggressively. Um I think I think those people are also another component mm-hmm. to a very, very sad, very, very tragic story. Yeah, it's just such a it's such a hard story and it's such a difficult question, right? What do you do with the author? Because you do you you made a very valid point that that I certainly underspoke there, calling it imperfections. It was abuse, and and there's yeah. there's a trail of of victims, and there's a trail of brokenness that you said rightly includes his family, yes. uh, and uh, but certainly is doesn't stop at his family. It's it's primarily the people whom he abused, and so you know what what do you, what do you learn from that? What do you do with the pastors who you know uh, who have who have uh, lost their jobs for any number of sinful reasons. And what do you do with all of their catalog of, of sermons that they have preached and the books that they have written? Uh, it does raise yet again, if you're in leadership of any sort, uh, if you have any sort of platform, the importance of integrity and character and uh, just the, the uh, what went on in his life is just crazy to me. The more I read it, I did want to read the end of stone streets uh, column here. He said, Finally, let's be reminded again, uh, especially those among us granted some degree of leadership, that we must be accountable to others. We must not trust ourselves, but only God and his spirit. Uh, Pray for your pastor, church leader, spouse, and whomever else God has placed in your life, uh, that God would protect them from the real and uh, present temptations that could harm them, others, and their witness for Christ. And please, he ends by saying, Pray for Ravi's victims, for his family, and for the ministry. So that was written by John Stone Street. This is a really tough question. We would actually love to really know what you have to say about it. Up on our Facebook page, uh, also Twitter and Instagram at Common Good uh, Talk. Well, coming up next, an article from Christianity Today that had some interesting findings about our pastors now more reluctant or less reluctant to preach about race. That's coming up next here on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Really glad to have you with us today. Uh, If you've been around the show for any amount of time, you know that Ian and I are both pastors. Ian is at... Uh, Community Christian Church, the Yellow Box in Naperville. I'm at uh, Four Corners Community Church in Darien. Uh, and so you uh, and I both preach on a regular basis and are, are doing the best we can to lead through uh, through COVID and other things. But uh, an, an interesting survey came out just the other day 
uh, at Christianity Today uh, through Lifeway Research, and it's entitled this, Pastors Are More Reluctant to Preach on Race. Though most still address the topic in sermons, it says, preachers report more pushback from their congregations over the past four years. Let me get us into it. Pastors seem more reluctant to address issues of race in their congregations today than four years ago. So according to Lifeway Research, 74% of pastors agree that their congregations would welcome a sermon on racial reconciliation, with 32% strongly agreeing. In 2016, however, 90% of pastors believe their congregation would be open to a sermon on the topic, with 57% strongly agreeing. Today, 17% of pastors say their church would not want to hear about racial reconciliation, up from 7% in 2016. Scott McConnell, executive director of Lifeway Research, said while most pastors' teaching is not limited to things their congregation wants to hear, it is helpful to know the reaction pastors anticipate from their congregation. Instead of a majority strongly agreeing, now only a third of pastors have no hesitation that their congregation would welcome a sermon on racial reconciliation. So that's a lot of numbers. So let me stop the numbers there because there's still more to come. Uh, Ian, I wonder when you first heard or read these statistics, uh, and and it gives you a four-year window here, but a lot has happened in four years. A, do these statistics surprise you at all? And what's your takeaway from it? I mean, it doesn't surprise me. I don't I don't know what the takeaway is. I mean, it's going to get into some some specifics regarding uh, denomination and region and all of that. So the article does make some speculations. I uh, I found this interesting. More than eight in 10 pastors, 83%, say they've preached on racial reconciliation in the past two years, including 70% who say they have not received any negative feedback because of those sermons and 12% who have been criticized. So that, I mean, if I had to blindfold, take a guess, that's about what I would assume. 83% mm. in the last two years, 12% of that, 12 and a half, whatever, have received some level of criticism I, actually, that's probably the smallness of that percentage is the most surprising. I feel like we get criticism if like a joke doesn't land or, you know, <laughs> some, something yeah. much more benign than like a big sweeping. Now, we, I remember the first couple of times, at least in my time at Community, we, we framed them. We called them, uh, what was the series called? Conversations. So it was a series of kind of one-on-one pre-recorded conversations with somebody who's kind of an expert in that field. And one of them was on on race and racism. And, you know, people seemed overwhelmingly supportive and there definitely were outliers and people who, who left the church. And that's, I, I suppose the risk you always run tackling anything like this, but if there's anything that I've learned in doing this show the last year. And some of the guests that we've had on who have very pointedly, very winsomely sort of nudged and reminded and prodded, like it's, it's not, it's, it's, it's unfortunate that so often, Topics of race seem to be outside of, quote, the gospel message that like the gospel doesn't inform conversations of of race and ethnicity. And uh, I feel like this last year in particular, we've heard from a number of leaders, you know, many of whom are in this area that have kind of helped unpack that reality. And I'm sure people have heard on our show and disagreed. But uh, I think yeah. that there's a to, to me, it feels like there's actually a, like a rising interest in preaching about this. So that probably by and large is what I find most surprising from this study. Yeah. Does it, um, I wanted to take this two different directions. Why do you think uh, sermons on race, particularly 
I would guess most people probably preaching them as I think about how I've talked about race before. You you talk about the image of God, the Imago Dei, some other things. Um, why do you think that those? Uh, this might seem obvious, but why do those cause so much? Um, uh, not just pushback, but just uh, emotion. Why do that? Cause, why is that the one? Do you think uh, that that rises? Uh, people's, uh, I don't know if I should preach on this. Oh, that might get a lot of pushback. What is it about the topic of race? Do you think that causes that? Well, I mean, you, you might be projecting a little bit there. Cause I don't know that the reason, <laughs> I don't know that the reason that those who feel uncomfortable preaching it is because of the pushback they anticipate. That's probably true for some, but I don't uh-huh. think that's true for all. I think plenty there's preachers that I know of personally that don't think it is appropriate to preach on a period, even if their church was begging for it. Like it's their conviction and that's not appropriate for the pulpit. So I don't think it's just mm. out of fear of nah, I might get some pushback. Some pastors I know love pushback. They almost they almost <laughs> thrive on like impending conflict. It like just gets them up in the morning. So obviously that's in, not in the majority, but I think I think it's charged because it's charged in our world right now like i think yeah rightfully so regardless of what side or position you hold um it's likely to evoke some uh, emotion and i don't necessarily think that's new but it certainly does feel like the flame has been turned up at least in my little tiny corner of the universe i have plenty of brothers and sisters of color who are like yeah we we've been making this drum for a long mm-hmm. time you guys Good point. like finally joined the party so so, you know, to them lovingly, they they would say to me, like, don't act like 2020 was just like, aha, like we've we've been living it. And and to that, I have to lament and repent and do better. But, I yeah, I think there's there's already so much emotion around so many of these discussions anyway, mm-hmm. that it makes sense then that to tackle a, a topic like that in a place like a church, uh, it would likely some of that emotion would carry over. I, I want to close this by asking you a preaching question. So you as a preacher, like you just oh said, boy. you come to a text or you come to a topic and you're like, okay, you, you know, you already have in your mind, ah, this is going to get some pushback or, you know, you kind of have the, the, the person's face in your, in your mind, who's likely to send that email or something. Are you the type of person that goes, I can't wait to preach this and get that pushback and have that debate and go, <laughs> or are you one of those people who's like, Oh, I can't, I just want to avoid my email for a couple of days. Cause we've all had that where you get to the text and you're like, here we go. Like this is going to do something. Uh, but like you hinted at, I think every pastor I know kind of deals with that differently. Some of them love it. They're like, yes, let's just wrestle together. Uh, and other people like, I just, just don't want to have to deal with that kind of emotion. Where do you land on that? What do you, how, how does it work in Ian's <laughs> brain as he gets ready for Sunday morning? Uh, probably, I mean, this is kind of a cop out, but probably somewhere in the middle. I don't, I don't eagerly look forward to things that I know that will cause fights, but I also know that like some of the best growth and progress comes through conflict. I'm not afraid of, of that, even though like there, it, it certainly can, especially if you're, if you're coming at it from the heart of a pastor and not just a preacher, you know, that that's mm-hmm. the, that's one of the big differences. A, a, a preacher is just, they're interested in like bringing a compelling message. And and I think that's perfectly fine. A pastor though also includes a, a shepherding acumen that knows like, man, I still think I need to say, say this, but these eight people though, are really <laughs> going to rattle them. And I need yes. to be pastorally sensitive, maybe even preemptively. So like, Hey, can we, can I get coffee with you? Can we have a zoom call or whatever before call. this Sunday? Because my guess is 
this might either be triggering or might cause some reactions. And I care, I care for you. I care for your family. I care for you as a person. And I'm not looking to just grab a microphone and, uh, and start, you know, dropping bombs. That's not helpful to anybody. So yeah, again, probably somewhere in the middle, but I, I have lived through enough conflict and tornadoes to know like, man, I didn't love that season, but it definitely grew us as a team or as a church or as a community and as an, and an, as an individual. And I've, I've appreciated that. I want to be like a traveling preacher who just goes to different churches, drops some bombs and moves on. (laughs) No, I'm joking. (laughs) I think you know enough of my personality to know that that is not actually the case, but uh, I'm sure there are people who wish they could do that. So Uh, coming up next, here's a, here's a headline that'll get you Christianity today. We need to be better losers coming up next year on the common good AM 1160. Hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Ian Simpkins. My name is Brian Fromm. Really happy to have you with us today. If you've missed any of the show, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram is your spot to go at Common Good Talk or 1160hope.com. Or you can get our podcast wherever it is you get your podcast. Just subscribe, rate, and review. Uh, We are grateful to those of you who do this. You know, I didn't plan to ask you this, but... Uh, uh, I bet your people would love to know what is it that you're watching right now? Netflix? Are you in? Are you binge watching something? What is when you've got you and your wife have a moment to watch something? What are you watching these days, dude? As of late, I'm not really watching anything. I'm not gonna lie. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. No documentaries uh, or anything. I I did watch a documentary uh, recently. What did I watch? (laughs) I, I can't. It was like a a very unique free window she was gone and the boys were sleeping so i was on like elite athletes or something i have no idea why mm-hmm. I, it was really interesting but yeah i i've adjusted my my schedule as of late and i just i haven't i haven't really built in time for that so not not much do you do you have something that you're watching that you're pumped about you haven't been built in time for television how dare you <laughs> <laughs> Uh, my family and I, we, we watched, it was only two seasons long. So we finished it. I don't even know how we came on it. Uh, it on Netflix, I would tell, I would encourage people if you're into this type of thing, it was a, uh, it's like a survival show called a dude you're screwed. And it was like <laughs> literally these five like military guys. One's like a Navy ex Navy seal. One is an ex army ranger. And they like kidnap one of the five and they drop them in the most remote, dangerous places. And they have a hundred hours to find any civilization. It could be a boater. It could be a town. It could be somebody. It's the, it was the craziest thing. Cause you're like, how do these people not all die? <laughs> but I is that what you're just saying the whole time? Like, how are these guys not dying? Oh my god! Our family legitimately, we're like, wait, like if that one thing had gone differently, they just acknowledged they'd they'd be dead. Like he'd be dead. <laughs> like there was no way they could have saved him. Wow. And so, or like they're out. The you know this one guy sleeping out in the jungle. All of a sudden, he hears lions, and you're like, how do you protect yourself? <laughs> <laughs> That's anyway, uh, it's not the normal type of show that I watch, but it was really enjoyable. So there you go. There you go. Uh, has nothing to do with what we're going to talk about here, but Daniel Bennett at Christianity Today, uh, he wrote this uh, interestingly on January the sixth, which is the it came out on January sixth, which was the day uh, of the uh, all epiphany. that happened at the U.S. Capitol and and the Epiphany, yes, but it was uh, for our purposes here, it was the day uh, of the insurrection at the U.S. Capitol. Uh, but that's not a part of this article because it had already been written and it had already came out. So he wrote this. This was still in the midst of everyone going crazy about 
uh, elections being stolen and, and the legitimacy of the election. And Daniel Bennett wrote this. We need to be better losers. The legitimacy of U.S. election requires someone to lose for Christians that should be okay. So this is going to be a fascinating one. Why don't you uh, get us into it? Yeah, especially since it was published on the 6th. That is, yeah. you think someone someone like Bennett watches the news knowing that his article just went live a couple hours earlier and was like, ah, should, should I tweak some things? Should I? I can see that being, redo. <laughs> right. I can see that being pretty uh, anxiety producing. Anyway, Absolutely. Says, nobody likes to lose. Actually, quick pause. There's a um, there is a docu series on Netflix about losing, and mm-hmm. it follows a number of different uh, like elite athletes or teams and how they. It's usually some pretty dramatic loss, and then how they kind of process the loss. It's it's really really fascinating. Anyway, nobody likes to lose, but Americans will need to get better at losing if we want to maintain our system of government in the years ahead. And Christians of all people should be modeling losing well based on our commitment to Christ's victory through the cross and what we are told in Scripture about our nature as losers in the eyes of the world. Oh, interesting. Neither Americans in general nor Christians in particular have demonstrated an ability to be good sports in defeat this week, though. Oh, boy. Can you imagine? Hi, Pippa. Can you imagine <laughs> reading that line again later in the day I on know, the 6th? Least, as you're watching it unfold wow. on CNN, as you're reading Christianity wow. today, yeah. It says, when Congress certified the results of November's presidential election, formally naming Joe Biden the winner, dozens of representatives and several senators objected to the results of the election in a number of states. These were unsupported claims with no chance of changing the outcome, but they did turn what is usually a formal and boring process into a partisan frenzy and perhaps a litmus test. Yeah, right. For Republicans (laughs) running for national office in 2022 and 24. Ever since the election concluded in November, there have been allegations that the election was taken from President Donald Trump. The president has long perfected the image of being a winner, and some Trump voters could not believe it was possible for him to lose. The only explanation was an insidious plot to steal the election and subvert the will of the American people. Fighting these results, therefore, became a matter of standing up for America itself. I'll pause there for a brief moment. How do you feel about uh, this setup, particularly with this article having been published on the 6th? Yeah, it is really interesting to to read it through that lens because uh, everything just went times 10, you know, times 100 of what he's saying. Uh, I watched a really interesting show the other day with some people who knew Donald Trump uh, when he was much younger, like kind of even as a kid, but also like early in business days and said there were some people who theorized it was very interesting that the number one thing that he hated the most in life was to be seen as a loser. Yeah. Uh, just in general. Uh, that's a, to that's, look at, he's an Enneagram eight, too. That makes a lot more sense. That's interesting. Uh, and so you start to see how he's even uh, a attacked the the election results and and i do find that interesting i think this is a great setup this idea that we as christians need to be better losers i think it's pretty fascinating yeah do you want me to keep going or do you want to uh keep going you want to riff yeah no get us into some more of this yeah i want to skip a little more uh it says in the days following november's election i asked my students what was more likely that a consistently unpopular president overseeing a once in a lifetime health crisis and sputtering economy who narrowly won his previous election against a deeply polarizing opponent narrowly lost his current election to a less polarizing and more popular opponent or that the same president was the victim of unprecedented fraud and corruption, even though his own party actually overperformed in many down ballot races. Um, Occam's razor isn't a perfect tool, but here, here it is here. It proves especially useful. The simpler explanation really is better. 
I, I don't know if you, is this a conversation that you've had to have with people like within your own sphere of influence and community and all that? Absolutely. Like, uh, yeah. yes. Yeah. I'll just leave it at that. Yes. <laughs> and, and how did that go? Uh, it depends who they voted for. Some people, a lot of people could kind of see it for what it was, but I've had people who be like, you know, when you lay those things out, you know, uh, he lost this and, you know, you've had uh, a, a pandemic that's raging and blah, blah, blah. And they go, nope, I still think he won. And and you're just my thing to people has always been, hey, they lost 60 court cases. Like there's no court case that has yet said anything has changed. And I, I was fascinated by how many people uh, close to me were willing to be like, yeah, I don't believe it still. It's kind of goes back mm. to uh, just not being able to uh, to get your arms around the fact that you might have lost. Yeah, he goes on to say Christians should be leading the way in losing well, rejecting nonsense and embracing truth. However, dispiriting is essential to our witness to a skeptical world. If Christians are broadcasting conspiracy theories about elections, what credibility do we have when telling the world of the good news of a resurrected savior? When it comes to making sense of controversial things like presidential elections, we Christians should not be naive or bury our heads in the sand, but neither should we be searching for comforting explanations in far off places in lieu of realistic explanations right in front of us. I'll end with this. Scripture serves as a valuable resource in this conversation. The psalmist advises, quote, put not your trust in princes and a son of man in whom there is no salvation. That's from Psalm 146. When Christians speak of a given election, either winning or losing the soul of our nation, we risk putting the government of men ahead of the sovereignty of God. Mm. There's a bunch more in this article. It gets a little devotional here at the end, but uh, yeah, yeah, I definitely recommend reading it. Yeah, he talks about our identity in Christ and having confidence that comes from our identity should should allow for us to be okay losing from time to time. And I just have never really thought of it that way. Uh, but having uh, having our identity rooted in who we are in Christ, I think, is such a key to this. So you go ahead. And as Ian said, there's a lot more to this article. Uh, it's up on our Facebook page, also Twitter and Instagram at Common Good Talk. Well, yesterday, uh, the yearly survey about the most dangerous countries, uh, where where it's most dangerous to follow Jesus, that came out yesterday, and it's a really sobering uh, but interesting read. We're going to talk about that next here at the Common Good, AM 1160. Coming up this hour, we're going to talk about the 50 countries where it's most dangerous to follow Jesus. And then Tony Evans asks us how to tell when you're serving an idol. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Hope you're having a great Thursday afternoon. If you've missed any of the show up to this point, A, why? But two, I just went A and two. B, uh, we are glad. You do that every time. I know, I really do. Uh, <laughs> a couple different places. If you missed the first hour where you could go back and catch up, you could do so uh, on our podcast, wherever it is you get your podcast. Go ahead and subscribe, rate, and review. You can also find the show on 1160hope.com. And uh, Ian, each year, uh, Open Doors USA, they, they produce a list, an annual accounting of the top 50 countries where Christians are the most persecuted for following Jesus. I feel like every year that this has come out, that we've had a show, we've actually taken time to read this and just uh, try to point our, 
uh, us as Christ followers to like, there are places in the world where people are literally dying for their faith. And what do we do with that? How do we, what does that do to us here in America and our faith? And so I thought it was important again, that we spend a little bit of time just thinking about this and reading this. This is the 50 countries where it's most dangerous to follow Jesus in 2021. It says this, every day, 13 Christians worldwide are killed because of their faith. Every day, 12 churches or Christian buildings are attacked. And every day, 12 Christians are unjustly arrested or in prison, and another five are abducted. So reports the 2021 World Watch list, the latest annual accounting from Open Doors of the top 50 countries where Christians are the most persecuted for following Jesus. Uh, It said, uh, David Curry, the president and CEO said, you might think the list is all about oppression, but the list is really all about resilience. Mm. The numbers of God's people who are suffering should mean the church is dying, that Christians are keeping quiet, losing their faith and turning away from one another. But that's not what's happening. Instead, he writes, in living color, we see the words of God recorded in the prophet Isaiah. I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The listed nations contain 309 million Christians living in places with very high or extreme levels of persecution, up from 260 million in last year's list. Uh, Another 31 million could be added from the 24 nations that fall just outside the top 50, such as Cuba, Sri Lanka, and the United Arab Emirates, for a ratio of one in eight Christians worldwide facing persecution. This includes one in six believers in Africa and two in five out of Asia. So that's just a lot of numbers. We'll get into some of the specifics, but uh, Ian, those are every time I read stuff like this, and it, it is just really sobering, like to read one in six in Africa, two in five in Asia, 309 million worldwide. Uh, it is wild when when we get kind of a global view of really what's going on out there. Yeah, I think sobering is the right word to use, but I, I don't want it to stop there either, though. I think it, the temptation, either recording this um or making a radio segment of it or hearing it, we can all run the risk of saying, wow, that's sobering and then carry on with our lives, you know, and that's something that we have, we've brought up in the past and we've talked about particularly like global persecution of Christians is it can at times really feel, it can feel difficult to know what to do with it. Like some of these numbers are, are staggering and horrific and, and also sometimes very difficult to wrap your brain around. Like I don't, my reality is, is just so much different than that. And not to make it about anything hot button or controversial right now, but like when I, when I hear about some of the kinds of persecution that some of these Christ followers are enduring globally, and then I hear someone losing their mind because the Walmart employee said, Hey, sir, you need to wear a mask in here. Mm-hmm. And they start screaming about persecution you know, I want to say, yeah, maybe, probably not. And at a global scale, like, doesn't even show up on the Richter scale. You know what I mean? Like, it's, mm-hmm. it's that, it's that kind of. For me, like, even thinking through, man, the things that I so easily get upset about or feel crushed by. And again, it's not about comparing, you know, difficulties and hardships and trials, but. Every once in a while, maybe that's a healthy thing to do. Like, all right, yeah, I legitimately had a rough day today. And that's not dismissing, like, maybe just the emotional, mental strain that I'm feeling. However, 
I think reading lists like these does help us maintain a, a broader perspective on like the big seed church in the world. Yeah, it's, it's China. I, this surprised me. It joined the top 20 for the first time in a decade due to mm. the ongoing and increasing surveillance and censorship of Christians and other religious minorities. Uh, you might be wondering, what's the top 10 list? Here's the top 10 of where it's hardest to follow Jesus, according to Open Doors International. Uh, number one is North Korea. Number two is Afghanistan, Somalia, Libya, Pakistan, uh, Eritrea. I've never heard of that nation, Eritrea. Yemen, Iran, Nigeria, and India. Uh, there are four new countries were added to the 2021 top 50 list. Mexico uh, came in at number 37. The, uh, the Democratic Republic of Congo, Mozambique, and uh, Comoros came in at number 50. And uh, it is sobering, like we've been saying, just to read this. It is uh, wild. And, and I think you started down this road, Ian, of like, what do we do with this, because I know, I mean, I lead a church, you lead a church. I've, I, I don't talk about this in my church, uh, ever, to be honest with you. We might have missionaries come through, uh, and, and talk, but, but this isn't something we really talk about. Um, and I don't know, I guess why that is, is just that we become pretty, um, self focused. You know, it's very easy just to think about what's going on around us, but, uh, when you read this, what, what's our what's our call? What, what do we do with this? We're Americans. We're never going to be on this list. It's going to take a lot, a big change to ever be on this list for us. Uh, what do you do with this? What 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 is a takeaway? What is a what is a call to action for somebody who's listening right now? Here's what jumped out at me. You know, the title of this list is where it's hardest to be a Christian. I don't mm-hmm. I don't know that that's the right title because uh, if that if that was the list. I think the United States might be might be on that list for for a very very different reason. Like that's again, I totally understand the the ease of saying something like that from the comfort of my like suburban basement. But you know, I think and I think I've told the story before. I think of when I was in India in 2006, sitting on the dirt floor of a a one bedroom home in like rural northern India, and this this woman asking where I was from, and I said the United States, and she said. Gosh, we we pray for you Christians in America. We cannot imagine what it must be like to try and follow Jesus in a place as distracting as America. And I'm like, really, literally wow. sitting on this dirt floor, this like corrugated metal walls. Like it was the it was the the picture in my mind of of poverty, of destitution. And I remember thinking, you pray for me? No, no, no. I'm supposed to pray for you. Like I flew over here. I, I watched three Adam Sandler movies on the way. Like I got a meal coming tonight. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was months, months later that I realized like how, just how right she was like, Oh, we cannot imagine like actually being a Christian, actually pursuing Jesus in a place that distracting, that inundated with so many things and so many mixed messages and so many, you know what I mean? Like, some might say, and I have friends in some of these countries that are like, man, in some cases, the persecution is the thing that like deepens our faith. It mm. makes the roots go down way more deep in the soil. And I I would wonder if maybe they would disagree with that yeah. particular title. It's hardest to be a Christian. Like, yeah, it's definitely difficult. But man, it is it is it is so much more life giving than when you're sort of lulled into a sleepwalk state, you know, in a country where like, oh, you can be a Christian or whatever. It doesn't yeah. matter. No, no one yeah. really cares. I, I think that's probably worth grappling with a little bit that's a that's not where i thought we'd go with it that's a really good point because you know you look at the early church and then being persecuted and and 
persecution in many ways, spreading the gospel and sp- or spreading the church or the old yeah. saying about the blood of the martyrs. And uh, yeah, that our, our relative, the martyrs, the seed of the church, right? There you go. Uh, the, uh, the, the relative ease with which we live uh, is you think of the lukewarmness that Jesus talks about in the book of Revelation, and there's there's much to be thinking about there. So read this. Uh, it is uh, it's an eye opening thing to read. We've got it up at our Facebook page. Well, coming up next, Tony Evans. Uh, he talks about this at Relevant Magazine: How to Tell When You're Serving an Idol. We're going to hear from Tony Evans next here on the Common Good AM 1160. Hope for you. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm, joined as always by Ian Simpkins. Uh, And uh, we're going to talk here in a second. Tony Evans wrote an article at Relevant Magazine entitled this, How to Tell When You're Serving an Idol. The idea of idol worship being so foundational uh, in in the teachings of Scripture. Before we do that, uh, I, as you know, love to hear about the holidays of the day. Yesterday, we learned all about Peach Melba, I believe it was called. Uh, but uh, what are the holidays of today? Yeah, it's a couple of things. Orthodox New Year is probably the one that m- most people are uh, aware of. Most? I don't know. I mean, on a global scale, for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, in Uzbekistan, it is Defenders of the Motherland Day. <laughs> that Sounds is like an awesome day. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That That is the most a day has sounded like a video game so far. Yes. Um, in Tunisia, it's Revolution and Youth Day. So I don't know if that's two different days. <laughs> Combine the two. Yeah. Youth are like, can we have a day? Like, sure, you can share with Revolution. Okay. <laughs> uh, it's Ratification Day. There's a couple other days here I can't pronounce. It's National Hot Pastrami Sandwich Day. Oh, I'm not a fan of pastrami. I'm not. At all? In any no, temperature? I, lo- I love sandwiches, but I don't like pastrami. Oh, I like how you defending yourself is to say, like, no, I'm into sandwiches. Oh, That's, I, I eat one every day for lunch. Love sandwiches. Not the weirdest, pastrami. weirdest thing to brag about, Brian. <laughs> oh, guys, believe <laughs> you me, at least no, one I, a day. I Oof. don't want any emails. I love sandwiches. <laughs> what, what a what a controversial take here on the common good. Brian from into sandwiches. <laughs> loves not just likes. He loves sandwiches. <laughs> hey, here's here's one though. Here's the last one, uh, and I'm sure that Brian Fromm is already celebrating. It is National Dress Up Your Pet Day. So congratulations <laughs> on the Pippa outfits. Is, I, I already saw the photos Pippa, online. Pippa is in a sweater more because she's little and gets cold in the winter time. <laughs> wait, 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 wait. So you're the guy who notoriously railed on pets in strollers, but you have pets in sweaters within your own home. One of the two dogs, yes, and it's simply because she gets so cold. Yes, yes, yes. yes. In the house, I, she's an inside dog. She just wears it all the time. But I would say, no, she goes outside. Uh, oh, she and does. I okay. would say, without selling out other members of the family, I did not put the sweater onto her. <laughs> it's just on her. Wow, um, wow! Way to she, way to lead them. <laughs> she is a tiny me. dog, so it is it is sad. You'll see her come in just shivering, and you're like, oh, sweetie. <laughs> Didn't she, before we started, get a uh, jump on your head? No, that was my other dog. That was the uh, puppy Jersey, who is three or four times oh. bigger than Pippa. So, uh, gotcha. yeah, no, Jersey. I, I have my bed is right behind me. And Jersey it will come up and jump on the bed. And she just, like, launched herself onto my head right before we started. I'm like, ah. Because <laughs> she's still the puppy, so she'll go crazy. And, probably because uh, yeah. she wanted a hot pastrami sandwich. That's probably why. Or or a sweater. Yeah. <laughs> or a cardigan. <laughs> Uh, Tony Evans, uh, what, he is frequently the preacher you and I will talk about when we make our 
our lists of preacher who make us feel like we should never preach again. Uh, Tony Evans, man, he is such a phenomenal preacher. Uh, he wrote an article at Relevant Magazine entitled this, How to Tell When You're Serving an Idol. Uh, so let me get us into this because the idea of idol worship uh, is is such a big one in scripture. He writes this. One day I'd gotten in my car to drive to church. I pushed the garage door opener, but nothing happened. Needing to get to a meeting, I decided to call the repairman. The first thing he asked me was to walk over to the garage door and check to see if the canisters at the bottom were facing each other or if one had gotten knocked to face another direction. This is because when two canisters fail to align with each other, the signal does not connect and the garage door will not raise. I had no idea that that was true. <laughs> uh, as soon as I turned the one canister, which had gotten knocked out of alignment, my garage door opener worked just fine. I was free to leave all because of this powerful thing called alignment. Uh, the garage door had been too heavy for me to open. It had been too difficult for me to force up, but a simple adjustment and alignment did the trick. Similarly, believers who refuse to align to divine rule in their lives face closed doors. I see what he did there. Blocked destinies and trapped dreams. It's all about alignment. You cannot ask God for divine favor while simultaneously making choices that go against his revealed will. That's a contradictory request due to the nature of a covenant. Remember, a covenant is a divinely created relational bond, which carries with it both blessing uh, and consequences. And he goes on to talk about how Moses uh, made those consequences very clear in Deuteronomy 30. What do you think about that open there, Ian? The Not just the picture of the garage door, but his uh, his drawing us to that idea of alignment and its importance. Yeah, I think I think it is really important. I, I mean, who am I to push back on Tony Evans, right? <laughs> uh, I don't know. You got the radio show. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm sure he also has a radio show. If he wants one, yes. Yeah, it's, it's funny that you bring this article up. I just read a post from somebody else and I can't tell if this is an algorithm playing a trick on me, you know, cause a lot of, a lot of our friends are pastors and a lot of pastors are posting things that they're processing, you know, in the midst of the world. And and so he, he made uh, his post was, was really a story. Kind of his punchline was, I put you in the game, not because you petitioned, but because of your preparation. Right. And the, 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 the premise, not to use another P word was that, um, <laughs> Yeah, you did the hard work of preparing, and and now you're ready to be in the game. And I, I, I thought, man, I, I get what you're driving at. There feels like there's so many stories in the New Testament alone of people who were, you know, to use Evans's language, like weren't in any way aligned. You think of, I mean, Paul's a pretty extreme example, but like Paul's conversion right. experience, we have no sense at all that he was like, you know what. I should join a small group or, you know, like <laughs> it was like on his way to go clean up his act. And like the Lord met him in this like really scandalous, unforeseeable way. And so this feels a little bit like a cop out, but sometimes it feels like a both. And I think Evans is maybe speaking to people who have walked with Jesus for a while and is maybe saying, Hey, you don't just, you don't just get to chuck whatever prayers you want in whatever direction you want, whenever you want. And just like, and, and think that God's like, God's some sort of celestial, you know, pinata who's like obligated to give you what you said, if you prayed the right way, mm -hmm. you know, the, I, I do like that sentiment. The idea like, man, aligning our hearts is something that we need to prioritize, but it's also, I would like to say the work of the spirit. And we need to remember that too. It's not just like, oh, I'm going to through grit and hard work and dedication, I'm going to be in better alignment so that 
God will start giving me what I'm asking for. <laughs> like that's mm-hmm. that's not really the goal either. And I think I think a lot of times it can be easy for us to take that approach. How about this idea of idol worship? We've talked about Tim Keller. He's written a lot. Uh, his book, Counterfeit Gods. But there could be people out there right now going, hey, I don't have idols in my house. I know friends that, you know, they got little statues. I don't have a statue. So clearly I don't <laughs> struggle with this idea of idol worship. Uh, how would you describe what are present day idols? What is it? What is this uh, idea about idol worship in our culture and what that even looks like? You know, there's there's a number of examples. But one of the things that um, I used to say, I haven't said it in a long time, but I, I would uh, I would say something like, you know, if, if a lot of us say things like, God, I'll follow you if or I'll serve mm-hmm. you as long as. And then I would say whatever's on the other side of if or as long as that's that's your real God. Like that's your mm-hmm. and I, to me, I think that's a helpful way of mining out because sometimes I sometimes I almost wish idols were all golden statues because you can at least stare in the face and say that's a th- I get that out of my house. I don't want that anymore. What I think and Keller does a phenomenal job in that book, but others have since then done, you know, a decent job. Um, idols of the heart are, are much harder to identify and probably even harder to expel. Like I think it was Augustine who talks about, and the heart is an idol factory. Like it just, it will, it will make a habit of creating them, you know, and, and in, to use Keller's words, it's, they're not always awful things. We tend to think of, Idols being these like really horrifically, really obviously evil things, and God wants us to focus on good things. He will, he'll say that for most of us, idols are good things that we've made ultimate things. That you know, when we have sort of a disordered loves, disordered allegiances, um, that is often a good indication that some kind of idolatry is going on. Yeah. Evans, exactly what you just said. He said, how do you know when you've chosen an idol? An idol is any unauthorized person, place, thing, or thought which you look to in order to determine your decisions. Basically, whomever or whatever influences you to the degree of making the final decision in your life, if this, uh, if it is not the true living God and his word, it is an idol. And so this idea mm-hmm. of idol worship, such a major one in uh, in scripture. Go ahead and read this from Tony Evans at Relevant Magazine. How to tell when you're serving an idol. Uh, uh, Ian, you're going to be proud of me. I found an article from a or uh, from a website called treehugger.com. I'm just going to leave it at that. That's what <laughs> we're going to talk about. Why would I be proud of that? Don't put that on me, Don't put that on me. You're listening that. to the Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Trees are your idols. Welcome back to the Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. My name is Brian Fromm, joined by Ian Simpkins, as always. Uh, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram at Common Good Talk. Also online, 1160hope.com. And get our podcast wherever it is. You get your podcast, subscribe, rate, and review. Thanks to those of you uh, who have done that already. And before the break, I told you I, f- I found your favorite website, treehugger.com. Uh, and you, you seem to take some umbrage with that. <laughs> You're the only person I know that regularly uses umbrage, by the way. Oh, I do love that word. I you really do. Umbridge. I don't know how to spell well, it. Well, give that know. give that umbrage back, Brian. <laughs> I take umbrage with that. Uh, so I found this uh, interesting. Somebody had it up at Facebook, and uh, it's from treeugger.com. It says this, uh, written by Lloyd Alter, bring back the front porch. It is the kind of, quote, in-between space that we need today. And I read this and I was like, oh, it's making some really good points, some of which we've discussed before. Uh, But I'd love for you to get us into this because I think there's an idea about 
maybe this guy's going to get at what he thinks we're missing in our culture and our society that's kind of symbolized by the front porch. So why don't you get us into this? I do find it ironic that a website called Tree Hugger <laughs> I see where you're going. Would have a headline called Bring Back the Front Porch when most porches are made of wood. That is I take umbrage with that. <laughs> of course you do. Is that where is that the direction you thought I was going? No, but that's really funny. Oh, where did you think I was going? No, no, no. That once you started saying that, I was like, oh, that's what he's about to say that there would. But I did not th- oh. I, I did not make that uh that connection at all. Okay, let me let me begin, and I can already tell there's a word here. I'm not going to know how to pronounce. Uh, front porches have long been derided as historical pastiche. Is that right? Sure, that's what it looks like. <laughs> yes, pastiche, pastiche with no with no place in modern design. But as photographer, architect, and writer Steve Muzan noted a decade ago, the people complaining about them quote have no understanding of their abilities to encourage people to walk and to bind communities together. As he wrote about the photo above, so the photo above is this lovely, would you call that suburban? That's suburban, right? Kind of that an really all American. Like <laughs> yeah, it kind of looks yeah. like like Geneva a little bit. Um, the city, by the way, the city of Geneva here in Illinois. <laughs> he says like. Yeah. That's very confusing to anyone like outside of our zip code. Um, uh, He says, I got this shot in mid 2007 at the waters near Montgomery, Alabama. After the woman had finished their conversation, I walked over to the woman on the porch and asked her permission to use the image. And she agreed. I asked her, was that lady a friend of yours? She said, no, I just met her right then. Back then, Muzan called porches a, quote, social interaction device. He measured them and documented them, calculating the relationship between height and distance from the sidewalk. As the porch gets closer to the sidewalk, it must get higher above the sidewalk. Otherwise, people simply will not sit on the porch because they feel too vulnerable. Interesting. (laughs) These days, front porches can serve a very different function in a sense to keep people a social distance apart. I was going to call it in an in-between zone, but Muzan gives Treehugger a better name for the current times. Quote, the porch is one of the few magical intermediate zones in urbanism where people can be partly in, partly out, able to both feel comfortable on their own turf and comfortable interacting with previously unknown strangers. It is the intermediate space which, more than any other place in the built environment, encourages humans to act like neighbors again. I'll stop there. I already love this article. I think you're spot on. We've we've talked about even in the United States, a particular book I read years ago about the migration from the the front stoop to the back Mm -hmm. patio and what that's done to our capacity to socialize with those who live in our same geographical space. Sounds like this guy's kind of getting after the same thing. Yeah. And so what's, what do you do with this? Let's pretend in a non COVID world. Okay. Let's, there's going to come a time where, uh, you know, we're, we're much more comfortable being near people and not wear masks and whatever else it might be. Uh, and, and so I think you're right. Like I'm looking out over my neighborhood right now where I'm sitting and none of the houses have front porches, right? Everything's kind of oriented towards, uh, the back of the house. You've got the garages for people to drive into, uh, and, uh, it's they're not set up the way it's talked about here. Uh, and so maybe, maybe our day and age, it's not about the front porch, but I think his point is bigger. It's that we've lost some sense of, of being neighbors and being a community that just sits and socializes and talks to each other. There's a great old time picture in here of people all dressed up in suits and ties, just sitting on mm-hmm. a porch in a rocking chair. Uh, 
But it says here the traditional front porch is the original place of overlap where public meets private, where diverse and flexible activities occur and where our families can socialize with our neighbors and friends. So if we've lost a little bit of the front porch, like what do you what do we do to reclaim this? Or is there anything we can do to reclaim this if we're not a really, quote unquote, front front porch uh, culture or society now? Yeah, I, th- I think there's something to that. I mean, the, the article really hinges on that. It says, yeah, urbanists have been saying this forever, but these days porches can serve additional functions. And I think I think they're spot on. I think of the uh, the woman that started the remember the blue picnic table ministry. Does that ring a bell? No, I think it's actually just called Blue Table. And she tells a story of some of the, the angst of being in her home and, and seeing people, you know, walk or jog or stroll past her house all the time, but not, but not knowing any of them. And I don't remember if she actually had a porch or not, but she set up this blue picnic table, like right at the sidewalk and would just start doing her reading out there or would make a thing of coffee and chill. And, and she goes, there's a whole video you can watch. It's beautiful. It's kind of grown into this like communal hub of the neighborhood. But she's like, all I did was just put a table out there. And I thought, Man, isn't that cool that like even if you're listening to this, you're like, well, I, yeah, I would love to, but I don't have a porch or, you know, whatever other limitations we might we might think would hinder us from doing this. Like check out Blue Table and other people like her who said, well, just simply being present actually apparently um, has an impact in how our communities function. And I think that's the biggest piece. It's you could have the best porch in the world, but if you're not actually there, yeah. um, not, none of this is really going to happen. And that's the other element of this that I find so interesting because it's maybe my memory is, isn't correct here, but anytime that I've lived in a house with a porch, you didn't like schedule porch time. You didn't like get together with the neighbors. Like, Hey, I'll be at mine 6 PM on Thursday. Like, so it's another one of those things that like can't be planned and it can't be microwaved. You know, it's sort of, Oh, I just spend time on my porch and sometimes I interact with neighbors. Sometimes nothing happens at all. Like there's some beauty in that too. Like I'm just going to be present to my community, to my neighborhood and, uh, and, and trust that, you know, over the course of time, it'll actually be meaningful. Yeah. And, and why would you say, let's close it this way. Why is it especially important for the Christ follower, uh, to embrace this kind of idea? Like you just said, of being present, of being in the community, what, what makes this important specifically for people who follow Jesus? You know, I, I definitely have a lot to learn about loving your neighbor so I'm I'm definitely not an expert, but I think knowing their name might help. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, like for even the novice Christ follower, we know loving God and loving neighbor is pretty significant, pretty important. And I think sometimes we think that means just like being nice to the people we attend church with or hopping on yeah. a mission trip every once in a while. It's like, I think a big part of it though are actual neighbors. And if we're honest, a lot of us really struggle to even know, well, how do I do that? What if they aren't into Jesus. So we don't like the same kind of music. You're like, exactly. Like that's the, that's the rich yeah. diversity of like, you are, you know, what, what's the phrase? If, if you've ever left your house before you've been on a mission trip, like you have an opportunity mm-hmm. wherever you're at, whatever your community looks like to sort of be on mission in that way. And I think just simply being on a porch, especially in light of, you know, COVID in the last year that we've had, it, it feels like it could be a really cool opportunity to, to re-engage in a meaningful, but also safe kind of way. Absolutely. Uh, At the bottom of the article, like with most articles, there's all sorts of comments from people. And this one person wrote front porch, easy, getting people to take out the don't talk to me earbuds hard. (laughs) So that's another (laughs) thing that certainly gets in the way. A a fun article, an interesting article, I think. 
uh, here from treehugger.com. Go check it out at our Facebook page, our Twitter and Instagram uh, at Common Good Talk. Well, coming up next, I want to end the show with some theology I found on uh, on Twitter from Ooh. an unexpected source. Coming up next here on The Common Good, AM 1160. Hope for your love. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Ian Simpkins. I'm Brian Fromm. Glad to have you with us today. If you missed any of the show, go to our Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram page. There's at Common Good Talk. Also online, 1160hope.com, or go get our podcast. You can subscribe, rate, review. You can listen to us whenever you want. And so uh, we would be glad to have you do that. Uh, I'm going to be really distracted right now, Ian. And I know it's the end of the show. I'm, as everybody knows, if you've been listening to the show, Ian and I are doing these shows during COVID uh, at our respective homes. And uh, somebody in my house clearly just microwaved popcorn and it smells so good. And I am now starving. <laughs> that's that's you know, all like it when, took was the smell of popcorn. <laughs> you know, when you microwave popcorn, it just like emanates out the whole house. <laughs> like it's just that's everywhere. True. Ooh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I microwaved fish for lunch, and that has the opposite effect. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, so where I live in Doubters Grove, too, we live just two or three blocks across the train tracks from the old uh, from the Pepperidge Farm plant. What's over there? Mm-hmm. And you go out at the right time, which was this morning as I was going out to my car for work, and it will smell like a bakery everywhere. It's the oh, best. <laughs> it's like, oh, my gosh, it smells so good. That sounds like the worst. I don't unless I'm also going to be eating it. I don't want to be smelling because I don't get it. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, okay. I don't want to take that from you. Feel free to enjoy that experience forevermore. Amen. Okay. Uh, so I wanted to read you this off of uh, Twitter, twitter.com, if you have heard of it. Uh, Is that a www so or a w, an HTTPS colon backslash backslash twitter.com? Let me go get my quill to write this down one second. <laughs> so I want to read. The, uh, there's some uh, some some. Uh, Somebody was doing a little bit of Bible study here, a little bit of uh, the- theology and preaching here, and I want to read it to you, and then I want to tell you who it's from. Okay. Because uh, I, I don't know. It was it, I, I laughed, but I was also like, huh, okay, when I saw who it's from. Uh, begins with Romans chapter 12, verse 21. Uh, do not overcome, be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. This person then writes at hashtag uh, Tuesday vibe. Uh, we are fighting two contagious, deadly viruses. One is COVID-19 and the other is hate. We've got vaccinations for COVID and the love of God for all the haters. The vaccine works when it's injected into our arm. The love of God works when you invite him into your heart. Uh, Jesus said, love your enemies, bless them that curse you in Matthew five forty four. The admonition, love your enemies, is one of the greatest statements Jesus ever made. Love in this passage is love that originates from God himself. Man is not capable of loving his enemy on the basis of mere human affection, but withers on the basis of the love of God uh, Almighty. And so uh, I was like, man, that's a good word. You want to know who wrote that? I mean, I already know. Mr. T. Uh, Mr. Yeah. T. <laughs> I was like, okay. Okay. Somebody uh, on Twitter, Mr. T has ascended to a whole other level of spiritual maturity. But then mm-hmm. I was reading this further about Mr. T. It said, uh, Mr. T said he stopped wearing virtually all his gold after helping with cleanup after Hurricane Katrina. He said, as a Christian, when I saw other people lose their lives and lose their land and property, I felt that it would be a sin before God for me to continue wearing my gold. I felt it would be insensitive and disrespectful to people who lost everything. So I stopped. Uh, And so we always try to end the show with a little bit of 
of inspiration and and whether it be or something to get us thinking. Uh, and, and, and so this will be the first time I've ever said this on the history of the show. We're going to go to Mr. T for that. Mm. Um, but uh, this idea that he says here that we're fighting two contagious, deadly viruses, one being COVID-19 and the other being hate. Uh, and it's the love of God that 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 uh, kind of deals with the hate. Um, I don't even know how to ask this. Like it, it's. It, what it, do you think he's right? That 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 we're increasingly dealing with hate in our world. This is a weird question to ask as we look at what happened at the Capitol last week. Uh, but more so, this idea that Jesus says, love your enemies and bless those, and that we as Christians have an opportunity to show love when there's increasing hatred around us. I guess I would ask you this. What does that look like? And what would the churches, what would it look like if we as Christ followers kind of took this up as our call right now very specifically? It's funny that you you ask that question that way because we were working on a talk this morning and it's it's a passage that a lot of people are pretty familiar with, you know, where Jesus washes the disciples' feet and it since then has been used in a trillion wedding ceremonies and the general sentiment tends to be ah, do nice things for each other, you know, which is not a terrible takeaway, but one of the things that we we were discussing in the original language this morning was that first when you know when jesus is done he says i've set an example for you now, now go and do likewise this idea of setting an example is one aspect to that but then later in john chapter 13 he talks about um about loving others and you know love is the kind of thing that you could you could write about for six lifetimes and still not really scratch the surface but one of the things that we found in the original language is that Part of what Jesus is saying here is you're only capable of loving by drawing on the love that I've given to you. Like to love mm. to the Good. caliber that I'm calling you to is to is to dip into the well that I've not planted in you. Like it's this yeah, it was such a, a beautifully subversive new way of it's not just like a hey, I've done this thing, so you ought to go love others then, because I loved you. So at least you could do go love others. He's like, no, no, no. It, you're drawing from the resource of my love given to you. That's how you're able to do any of this in the first place. And I thought, how wildly freeing that is. Because we've all Absolutely. you know, read verses like love your enemies, but you're currently facing an enemy and you're like, I don't want to love that enemy. I mm. I I would rather love the like nameless, faceless, ambiguous, quote unquote, like other person out there that I don't actually know, but the person that's like stomping on my last nerve or said that really mean thing that I can't let go of or took credit for something that wasn't, wasn't theirs to take credit for. You know what I mean? Those are the things that get under our skin. And I think, you know, when Thomas Merton says <laughs> our job is to love others without stopping to inquire whether or not they're worthy, like Jesus himself, you know, is offering love to even Judas as betrayer. So if that's the case, like who we're to love has apparently nothing to do with whether or not that person deserves it. And for Jesus to say, yeah, the only way that you're able to do any of that is to draw from, draw out of the resource of my heart that I'm giving to you. And I, th I just think that's a really important reminder when we're trying to do the hard work of loving enemies and praying for people who persecute us because yeah. in our own strength, we're just, we're just going to fall flat on our face. That's really good. On a really, let's end this on a really practical. You kind of got into it there, but what does it look like today in our day and age with all that's going on around us? What's it look like to actually love your enemies? Did anything come to mind for you? Yeah, I mean, there's a bunch of things. I, I would probably, I would probably say forgiveness needs to be somewhere in there. It's 
it's, it's really hard to love someone that you're still harboring bitterness towards. But I think a really simple practice, honestly, is pray for your enemy the same thing you pray for yourself. Like when you think about what you pray for, for yourself, for your family, for your kids, your spouse, whatever. Think about the things that you regularly ask God for, pray for, for the people you love. Pray those things for the person you deem your enemy. And it, it's not going to happen in a day or two or even a week, but like see if your heart doesn't begin to change. It's really hard to hate people you're praying for. It's really hard. Not because of any like magic hocus pocus, but I really think that the Lord does a work in our hearts when I, there's things that I, you know, I, it'll bring me to tears praying certain things for my wife and my boys. Cause like I, my, it just feels like my heart like wants to burst sometimes thinking about the goodness of what God has done in their lives. Like, yeah, now insert name of a person who drives you crazy. <laughs> oh man, it's so tough. It's a really tough practice. But over time though, I, I really believe that, that God begins to slowly kind of shift and change our hearts in a pretty, a pretty miraculous way. Yeah, and I think you made a great point earlier on talking about how it it's a you know it flows out of not just an understanding but uh, understanding God's love for us and and how He has loved us and uh, you know the imagery of being connected to the vine that that apart from that this is uh, yeah. an impossible thing to do. That's right. Uh, but and I think that's a great call. Pray for your enemies and see what that does to your own soul. I think is a wonderful way to leave it today. Well, we're glad that you joined us today. Hope that you join us again tomorrow for our Friday show from 4 until 6. Until then, uh, we hope you have a great night. For Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. You've been listening to The Common Good, AM 1160, Free Life.